Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. GOP has got to unify everybody. They have got to stop with all the internal squabbling. They got to find a way to have a united front against this Democrat leftist media opposition that they're up against right now because it is coming at them from all sides and you can't have internal divisions and external opposition and not have your agenda slowed down, if not stopped entirely. Uh, Buck Sexton with America Now here. Thank you so much. For joining, phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. As is always the case, by the time I have the honor and privilege of getting to hang out with all of you, much to discuss today, more than I'll probably even get to. We've got to, we've got to uh, pull apart all this infighting with the GOP, uh, within the GOP, and talk a bit about the latest on not just the Russia investigation, but now the, the full-on additional conspiracy theories that are being alluded to, if not outright stated. Also, very interesting uh, battle being waged right now over the, well, it's actually over for the day, but um, uh, House Bill 2 in North Carolina has been uh, repealed, and we'll get into that. This is over the transgender bathroom usage, also up in Canada. I've been meaning to talk to you about this all week. Fascinating and disturbing protest of a Canadian law. They wouldn't let a guy speak about a Canadian law that says that you can be charged with legal discrimination, you know, fined and I suppose even jailed if you don't pay the fine for not using the proper pronoun when addressing transgender individuals. This is not just a ban on certain kinds of speech. This is a declaration that certain words must be used or else. Oh, So we've gone beyond even just saying you can't say certain things to you must say certain things up in Canada, at least. Don't think that's far away. And we'll tie that into the transgender discussion. Also, health care. Next steps. Trump administration needs to get this thing together with the House. Uh, We'll be talking about that in the first hour, but also second hour. Ovik Roy will join to talk about his health care plan. I want to pose to him uh, and Coulter, who we've had on the show a bunch of times recently, I think Anne's great, just so all of you know. I'm, I think she does really good work. And she says on healthcare, I, I totally agree with her. I, I'm I'm really getting sick of the back and forth on how complicated all this is. She says pass a bill. The House should just pass a bill that says that we should allow there to be an open insurance market where you can just buy a plan that, that an insurer can say, hey, this is what we will insure. This is what it will cost. This is the plan we can offer to you, and you can just buy it. No more mandates, no more regul- no more state-by-state state regulations, none of that. You don't have to deal with it. It's a fascinating idea to me because that's what I want. 
I just want to be able to buy a plan. That's straightforward. But I, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself with that. We'll get into that more in the third hour. And then, of course, the furor over Mike Pence saying that he doesn't have dinner with a woman, not his wife, or doesn't attend events with alcohol without his wife present. Uh, the media showed us a lot. I mean, I mean, my uh, fellow pundits, but on the left, the pylon with Pence was fascinating. Uh, so we've got that. And also an, an interview with an ICE former Immigration and Customs Enforcement ICE agent who's going to tell us all about what is a sanctuary city, what is Los Angeles as a sanctuary city really do when the feds ask for them to hold an individual. Uh, we're going to get it from somebody who knows this backwards and forwards. No more theorizing, well, what is it really like in a sanctuary city for law enforcement? We have somebody who can tell us exactly, and we will get into that with him. Okay, first on the internal divisions uh, within Within the GOP right now, you have uh, a, a moment in time here where the House Freedom Caucus is getting called out, and some people are saying some pretty nasty stuff about them. But Trump, the president, said that. Well, I guess there there are other very important Trumps. Now we have a a, a few Trumps who have official government official government positions. Uh, which is in and of itself interesting. But a Trump tweet here, the Freedom Caucus will hurt the entire Republican agenda if they don't get on the team and fast. We must fight them and the Democrats in 20, did he say 2018 or whatever? We must fight them and the Democrats. And you also have uh, Paul Ryan out there saying that he understands president's frustration. Play it. I understand the president's frustration. I, I share frustration. Um, about 90 percent of our conference is for this bill to repeal and replace Obamacare. And about 10 percent are not. Um, and that's not enough to pass a bill. We're close. Um, what I am encouraging our members to do is keep talking with each other until we can get the consensus to pass this bill. But it's very understandable that the president is frustrated that we haven't gotten to where we need to go, because this is something we all said we would do. And so he is just expressing his frustration. You all know that he he does that uh, in various forms, including Twitter. And I understand his frustration. Uh, what about the frustration of those of us who voted for these Republicans who promised to repeal and replace Obamacare? What about the frustration of those of us who voted for Trump, even though we had misgivings about how effective he would be once given the most important job in the world? Um, but went forward with it. We're allowed to be, uh, we're allowed to be annoyed. I think about that more so than anybody else, because we're also the ones that have to suffer under this. Notable, isn't it, that Congress exempted itself from Obamacare? Didn't have to do that. Congress is exempt from Obamacare. I, I would like to see people talk about these laws that we all dream about, that we think would make the country much better and could be made real, but they, I don't think, ever will be. Uh, term limits is one that comes to mind. I, I would love to see term limits, but it's never going to happen because the people that have to vote for term limits are the people that have jobs that would be limited to certain terms. Also, um, looking at all of this now, I just would would love us to be in a place where we could trust that those who are in office would do what they said they were going to do, but we're just not there. It's just not going to happen. And we are frustrated, I think, watching this play out because this is a straight this is a straightforward issue. They promised a repeal in place. It's not happening. They said, put us in charge. We'll take care of it. They haven't done it yet. 
Um, and now, what are we supposed to believe? That they're just going to uh, somehow work together now? Now we're going to see the, the unity in the GOP going forward. The issues weren't that they didn't understand the bill or they didn't have time on the bill. The issues, you got Republicans who don't want to repeal and replace Obamacare. And Jim Jordan of the Freedom Caucus is trying to push forward, saying, let's not do the blame thing, but let's get this done. Look, uh, the Freedom Caucus is trying to change Washington. This bill keeps Washington the same, plain and simple. There, this bill doesn't fully repeal Obamacare. This bill doesn't lower premiums. And probably most importantly, this bill doesn't unite Republicans and the American people, as evidenced by the fact that only 17% of the country supports this legislation. So uh, we, we appreciate the president. We're trying to help the president. But the fact is, you got to look at the legislation. And it doesn't do what we told the voters we we're going to do. And the American people understand that. What do you make, though, of his reference to 2018 fighting you and the Dems? I mean, do you think he's talking look, about primary challenges? Where, where is he going with that? I mean, look, I, I don't, I'm not, not here to, to uh, assign blame to anyone. I'm not here to point to the future. What I'm focused on doing is doing what we told the voters we're going to do, Shannon. And this bill doesn't do that. Why would we go forward with a bill that doesn't do what it's supposed to do? I, I this. We're told that there's some level of complexity. We're told a lot of things, by the way, that really don't seem to be true in retrospect. Oh, it can't be done because of reconciliation. Well, why this Why this weak, watered-down, centrist approach from the House in the first place? And now you have all this blame-shifting around those in capital. I understand they're politicians, and any politicians can always justify pointing fingers at others by saying, well, even if I was wrong on this one, because of all the magnificent stuff I will do on other bills and on other issues, it's important that I not take the fall here. To be a politician in America these days is to be in a constant state of evading accountability. And that's what we see playing out right now. Uh, you got the, the president calling out the Freedom Caucus. You got the Freedom Caucus saying, let's stop with the blame game. You've, you're know, moderate, middle of the road, whatever you want to call them, Republicans. Surrender Republicans. You got them saying that uh, the Freedom Caucus is being intransigent and difficult. And all of this, while we have Republicans in, in, in the majority in the House, in the Senate, and a Republican in the White House. I don't want to believe these stories about disarray and a White House that can't get its act together and doesn't know what it's doing. But I'm also seeing more and more evidence that suggests that there are some issues here. And it's not just about... Uh, intractable Democrats who want to stand athwart the Trump agenda and do everything they can to be obstructionist. Sure, that's a part of it. I get that. But this is something else. This is when, and I've been worried about this all along, when Republicans were called to the task here. The first time it really counted and it really mattered, they failed. And last week we were told they're going to move on to tax reform. Well, now we're told actually they're going to do health care. They need to get it together because while they're squabbling, the American people don't have the health care system that they should have to keep suffering under Obamacare, which we were told for quite a long time was a terrible thing. And now it's just, well, it'll collapse under its own weight. So the American people get to just suffer more, I suppose. We can learn a lesson here. That's, that was the, the moral of the story last week. And while Republicans are engaged in all of this, you've got Democrats on the other side who are doing everything they can 
to stoke the stoke this fire to to fan the flames of Trump Russia conspiracy to push this story as far as they possibly can. Sure, there's the there are some of the Nunes. Many of you have been reaching out to me to tell me it is Nunes instead of Nunez. So I will I will go with those of you who believe it is only properly pronounced Nunes. Uh, Devin Nunes of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence is being pushed on his sources. You've got others testifying. The Senate investigation going on. So you've got Republicans going after each other. And the Democrats, you will notice, despite all of their shortcomings, despite all of their intellectual dishonesty and their ethical failings and the lack of clarity of purpose they have as a party in terms of ideological consistency and when it comes to power and just moving forward and doing everything together, sure. They are trying to take down the Republicans while Republicans are trying to take each other down. This is a an unacceptable state of affairs right now. Uh, we will get more into the healthcare side of this. I will give you what I think are some of the solutions, and we'll be joined by my uh, friend Ovik later on to talk about that. Uh, what should be done now? Instead, I don't want to just keep saying, oh, they messed up, and they didn't, you know, they had their swing at the plate, and they didn't get it done. Okay, true, they did, but we've got to go beyond that to what now? Uh, I want to hear more than just, you know, Paul Ryan saying that there's frustration, and he understands that. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Paul. Good job with that. Yeah, well done. Uh, and uh, got to get into the latest on this Russia stuff, which it, it's just rehash after rehash, more and more of the same thing we're being told. And they pretend it's a news story each time. None of this is really all. Well, some of it is new, but some of what I'll talk to you about we've heard before, but it gets repeated. Oh, did you know about this the giant international Russia conspiracy that we're all supposed to be so terrified of? I'm I'm not terrified yet. I know you're not either, or at least I assume most of you aren't. We'll see. Whatever it is that the Republicans that are part of this uh, investigation into Russia and the election and all that stuff, whatever it is they do or agree to, it's never enough. Just as I've told you, the investigation itself will never be enough. The people that are running around on Facebook and Twitter saying that Trump should be thrown in prison and is a traitor, and it doesn't matter what this investigation shows. They will always believe that. They will always be of that mind. You can't change their mind on this issue at all. We were hearing for days, and I pointed out to you, uh, because it, it just was so jarring to me, that the uh, chairman of the House uh, Intelligence Committee, uh, Nunes should reveal his source. They kept saying he should reveal his source. I said, why would he do that? What if this is a whistleblower? Well, now we are told, uh, now we are told that that is, in fact, the case from uh, Paul Ryan. Here's what he said. He had told me that, um, uh, like a whistleblower type person, had given him um, some information um, that was new, uh, that, that spoke to um, the last administration uh, and part of this investigation. He briefed me about it, didn't know the content of it, only knew um, um, the nature of it. So there you, there you have what I was saying initially is that this is somebody who came out who doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be necessarily tied to this investigation, just thought that the information needed to be shared with 
The White House, you also now have reports that you have two officials, White House officials, were part of the review process with Nunes, what was it, last week. And now this leads to uh, a situation where the White House has invited leaders from Congress to view the documents. So let's just see where we are now. Last week it was maybe Nunes, he should step down, he should recuse himself. I kept saying why. And maybe he's a liar. These documents don't exist. Now it's well, it's so strange that he's that they're inviting they're inviting members of Congress to see these documents after they've already looked them over at the White House. What difference at this point does it make about anything having to do with the veracity of these documents? You could say I would want to know. Uh, It is astonishing to me how quickly the narrative changes whatever trump does and whatever whatever the white house does and whatever republicans on this select committee on intelligence do is bad when they respond to the criticism on monday that they need to do x on tuesday it's well they did x but they should have done y it never gets better you'll notice there's all this sanctimony about investigation we need to find let's get to the bottom of this we need the truth we need to know what's going on and with each stage of this there's always a new way to come up with an angle and a context that makes this whole thing seem like it's one big watergate cover-up by the white house that's the way the press is reporting on this That's the hope here, by the way, as well. They believe that they can turn this into another Watergate meeting, which, as we know, Watergate was really just a burglar with a cover-up afterwards. Uh, You look at at what LBJ did and what kind of person he was, and isn't it fascinating that Nixon is always considered, like, the worst president of the history of the universe? Not LBJ, who was a really bad guy. Um, But I digress. And this is the way it is now. This is where we are. With each stage of the investigation, there's another, even with more information coming out, there's another claim of wrongdoing. Oh, they didn't go through procedure. I mean, you had people, without irony, saying that, that Nunes should step down from his role as oversight chairman in the House and not having any problem at all with the procedural issues that seem to be raised by former Obama administration officials who said, yeah, we were really worried about information on Trump and Russia, so we were making sure we spread it all over the government. That's not that's not proper procedure, by the way. That's not okay. That's not the way this is supposed to work. I used to be inside the intelligence community. I, I can tell you this. This is you're not supposed to be like, well, I, I don't like this incoming president, so I want to take derogatory information, you know, real or imagined, and make sure that as many people as possible have it. That's what a former Obama official said yesterday. We played it for you here on the air. Uh, so we've now we've got members of Congress invited to see the documents. And if the documents are real, we already know what the response is going to be from them, right? That, well, uh, you know, this this is all very, it's very sketchy. It's very shady that the White House provided these or, or reviewed them with Nunes. Why? Who, who's going to review them? How is, what is the protocol for trying to prove that the President of the United States is not a Russian mole? Some, someone tell me what the protocol is for that. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
Welcome back, team. Appreciate you being here. Phone lines are open, 844-900-2825. You want to call in. What are your thoughts on health care, on the Russia investigation, any and all of the above? Uh, do give me a ring on that. Okay, um, a few things. A little bit of movement on the investig- on the investigation side of the equation. You had uh, FBI Director Comey saying, we are not on, well, I'll let Comey say it. The last year, it's been almost a year now, has been both difficult and easier than you might think. And, and I'll tell you, I've never been prouder of the FBI. What, what makes it easy is we're not on anybody's side ever. We're not considering whose ox will be gored by this action or that action, whose fortunes will be helped by this or that. We just don't care. Interesting. I think that the Democrats have very short memories. They forget that it was Department of Justice prosecutorial discretion that prevented Hillary from facing criminal charges, very real criminal charges, while she was running for president of the United States. So if if anyone's getting the benefit of the doubt, it would be the Democrats thus far, uh, that we've so quickly switched to Donald Trump is a part of a a vast Russian conspiracy to steal the election. That's what this, they think he stole the election. We need to keep on saying what they insinuate, what they suggest, what they touch on, but aren't willing to, in most cases, just come right out and say it. I I mean, I've heard some, I think uh, there are some members of Congress who have said, you know, that Trump is, uh, Trump is a Russian agent or whatever, but most of them, just suggest that if we if we look more, we'll find more about the Russia-Trump connection. I would like to see every congressman and every senator who's out there with a D by his name ask the question, do you believe that Donald Trump is a traitor? Do you think that he betrayed his country? Do you think that he is part of a conspiracy to steal the election? And, and really push the down. I, I want an answer to that. Because if if the answer to that is no... Well, then what they're doing doesn't make much sense, does it? If the answer is yes, well, then I'd like to know what evidence they have for it. Because we know that they they believe this, or at least they're pretending to believe this, but they're never really pushed on the issue. No one just forces them to answer. I'd like to ask Congressman Schiff, is is Trump part of this election theft, which would be the most stunning development in American politics and I don't know, a century or something. I mean, it would be it would be unprecedented, I think. We could say that. I also I wanted to get into a bit of, um, well, you know, you've got the Senate Intel Chair, Richard Burr. He's saying that he, you know, he takes his oversight role, uh, well, quite seriously. I'll do something I've never done. I'll admit that I voted for him. <laughs> Um, we always hide who we vote for. Uh, that's part of the democratic process. But I've got a job in the United States Senate, and I take that job extremely serious. It overrides any personal beliefs that I have or loyalties that I might have. So you have uh, Burr saying he takes his role very seriously. Okay, fine. But you also have uh, the other part of all of this, which is the national the the. Stories about Russia and bots and the conspiracies that are out there. You have national security expert Clinton Watts at a hearing today saying, 
well, describing what he believes was part of of the Russian information offensive. This is part of information warfare. This is a massive, active measure, the Russians would call it, for the digital age. This is the the new form of propaganda warfare that's out there. And it involves bots and sock puppets on Twitter, fake accounts, social media, and programs and hackers. Oh, my. We have a series of humans at work in their psychological warfare groups that command both bots at the same time. And I like to, as an analogy, you can look at it like artillery. So you have someone who's engaging with you as uh, individual, and at the same time, they can launch a bot to amplify that story forward. Uh, or you can create more personas in Twitter, uh, for example, which makes it look like there are more people than there really are. It's a Potemkin village strategy, essentially, that amplifies your appearance. Um, so what they do is they launch those simultaneously as they begin the engagement or push of false news stories, usually from RT and Sputnik News. They do that in unison, which games the social media system such that such a high volume of content being pushed at the time raises that into the trends. Okay, so they are cheating the system at some level by getting their information uh, pushed up on the what's trending on. I mean, this is not really sophisticated stuff. Uh, And I I would like to see one study that is not later on retracted. I would like to see one case, one instance, where you have a serious news source dive into this and tell us how this played out in in any one given situation. Uh, I also was reading today that they believe this was targeted at certain states. This was an an incredibly sophisticated operation. I'm here in the U.S., reading news all the time. This is what I do for a living. And none of this fake news stuff ever got into my feed, never crossed my radar in a way that I was like, oh, what's what's that all about? I, I, I can't figure I can't figure this out. That's really that's really crazy. That's really strange. No. If someone's able to be fooled by fake news, I don't know what the national security defense mechanism is that we're going to put in place. Unless you're going to wall off the U.S. Internet from the Internet and the rest of the world, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that's out there. And yet here we are. More of the Russia collusion, Russia through the election, Russia stole it. Oh, Hillary, they took it from Hillary. It's so fair. It's so unfair. They were ready for Hillary. All the journalists were ready for her. And then it was just taken away. It's so mean. So you have the bots now. Now we're being told about the bots. And also uh, you have Watts, this guy, a national security expert, Clinton Watts, testifying that this is, again, part of the part of the the conspiracy. Now, I'm not saying the Russians don't play really rough and dirty. And they do. Absolutely. The Russian government's got a lot of a lot of bad, a lot of bad dudes. It's true. And Putin is one of them. I would not want to be on the wrong side of Putin. Uh, I I remember I was over at CNN when one of Putin's critics was shot within just within the shadow of the of the Kremlin itself. And we were talking about it. It was it was breaking news at the time. And I was on air and and they're saying, well, look at this. And sure enough, there was a, a camera that was nearby, a surveillance camera that just happened to be out. And it was looked like a very professional hit. It was against a Kremlin critic, and we get it, right? And then they they threw some uh, some nobodies into prison for it later, and said they were I think they were tied to Chechnyans or something. I mean, it was 
it was classic, uh, classic what you'd expect in in Russia right now. But why is all that Donald Trump's problem? Why is this uh, forcing us now to sit around and have constant testimony from Jared Kushner and from all these others that have to talk about, oh, when was the last time you spoke to a Russian or what Russian dealings with businesses have you had in the past? And, uh, and then, of course, all the evil deal, all the uh, evil deals and doings of the Russian government are can be pointed to as look at how bad they are. Look at how bad they are. They've been this bad for a long time. This isn't new. They were this bad for all eight years of Obama's time in office. They were this bad when Hillary pressed their ridiculous red reset button. They were this bad when Obama said he'd have more flexibility when he told Medvedev to pass on to Putin. He'd have more flexibility after the election. This is none of this stuff is a revelation. But it, it's part of the broader construct, which is we got Russia, opposition, enemy, really scary. We need to just every day more stories about Russia and how bad it is and all the Russian government so evil and they kill people. And we, Like I said, OK, yeah, that's true. But you could run that about a lot of different countries. And the only reason this is of such interest is because Democrats just need they need to be constantly fed this narrative that Trump is evil and that he stole the election and, and anything that goes in that direction Democrats want to read, they want to hear about, and some Republicans too, to be sure. And I was just saying to somebody yesterday, I I resent the implication, I I really do, that those of us who don't buy into this, that those of of us who see the Russian investigation as a political ploy to uh, harm the administration, its prospects, to oppose it politically because the Democrats are out of power and this is all, you want to talk about a conspiracy, the conspiracy is really between the Democrats and the media and all the different organs and agencies of the progressive left, including some elements of the American version of the deep state, which is much less than it is in other countries, uh, working together to create this storyline. And I know there's a part of me that says, you know, Buck, we shouldn't spend our time dealing with this. We shouldn't spend our time getting into this. There's, I want we, but we will talk about healthcare. We will talk about immigration. I, we'll focus in on core issues and. I'll also tell you some fun stories because we need to relax as well, too. That's part of my mandate here in the Freedom Hut. But when you have so many megaphones shouting the same thing and such a defamatory and destructive thing that the sitting president of the United States is a traitor, can you imagine for a second what the reaction would have been if in the first 90 days of Barack Obama's presidency you had not crazies on the on the the political spectrum of one kind or the other not people on the fringe not you know those people out there who just like to yell and scream at everybody on social media no if you had the largest newspapers and the largest tv news platforms in the country giving credibility giving credence to the idea that the president of the united states was a traitor was guilty of treason can you imagine what the response would have been? I mean, if any of them had done that, never mind if all of them, which is or most of them, which is what's going on right now. I, I, I think it's interesting to, to, for this. This game goes both ways. People say, oh, well, you know, Buck, what about what if Barack Obama had made his uh, had made members of his family official White House staff? The answer is, yeah, I think there would have I think there would have been people on the right who oppose that who maybe are a little more okay with what's going on right now in the white house than they should be yeah that that's the truth 
But there's all, okay, we, if we're going to play that game, let's really play that game, which is imagine for a moment that the entirety of the Republican Party was suggesting that Barack Obama was a, was a traitor to his country and part of some massive scheme and offered zero evidence. I don't care if it involved Russia or Iran or, you know, uh, space aliens, doesn't matter. But a traitor to his country. There, it just it would have created the kind of division that really does keep you up late at night and worry about the future of this country. And I think we're getting closer and closer to that right now. People that I think are otherwise sane and, and reasonable on a whole host of issues, fellow conservatives, they really they really believe this. And I keep saying to them, and this is where I feel like I need to offer up that I have some resentment of the implication here, which is if the president of the United States was getting a, you know, paper bags full of cash or what, it wouldn't be that, whatever. If they had uh, compromising information on him, compromise what the Russians would call it. If they had uh, some, or, or or if Trump was just so unscrupulous and so insistent on being president, even though his presidency would be hounded by the possibility of being found out to have colluded with a foreign power to steal the election. Think about how, how do you sleep at night with that hanging over your head? This, this is what they offer up. And when I say that I would want to know if that were true, they go, oh, no, you know, Trump, you're Trump bot and everything. No, look, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I'm telling you right now on health care, I, I do not like what I'm seeing from Trump or the, or the Republican Congress. I don't like it. It's not good. It's not good. Uh, and the, uh, the rollout of the uh, travel ban, whatever we're supposed to call it, the executive order limiting travel from six Muslim majority countries, part two, uh, I, that wasn't done well in the beginning, the first time. Second time, I think it, it got it pretty much right. But, you know, th- there are some problems here. And, you know, making members of your family senior White House officials is that's also if we're going to we're going to keep it real, which is what we do here, I'm not going to sit around and say everything Trump does is amazing. When he had to beat Hillary, you know, you, you got to do what you got to do. I couldn't couldn't live in a in a Hillary America if I could have avoided it. So, OK, but now we need a president that's pushing for good policies and is getting stuff done. I think he's trying. I still think his intentions are good. I still support the agenda. I support the platform. But let's not pretend that just because Trump does it, it's good. Uh this is perhaps a separate conversation, but I, I got because I, I because I'm willing, though, to look at each issue in that way on. And I'm a former intelligence officer who has much more understanding of a lot of these issues of surveillance and classified and all that stuff than 90, 95 percent of the radio hosts, TV people, etc. that are out there right now. And I'm sitting here saying, look, I'm willing to say that Trump makes mistakes or, you know, I don't say everything he does is great. And I just don't see it on this Russia stuff. I just don't see. I don't see it. And when I ask, it's like it's like telling somebody that I don't see the problem with or I don't see the imminent threat from climate change. They're just like, what, what do you mean? I mean, I mean, what do you mean? I was like, well, well, well explain, make this. Don't tell me that you're so smart or you're so right and, and that I'm so dumb and that's why you're right. That's not an argument. Why is Trump? Why are we supposed to believe that Trump did this or that there's this investigation is going to find what? What is it going to find out? I I get no good answers about this at all. I just get a lot of, you know, sputtering and indignation. It's Trump. He's so bad. This guy is like he's been married three times. Like, What does that have to do with anything? Oh, he's so bad. Look at his hair. They just hate him. They just 
hate him and all the Russia stuff is a way to intellectualize an irrational hatred of the president of the United States. It gives some intellectual top cover to think that the president is a traitor and he's terrible and and that's why it's never going to go away. So I'm going to try to strike a balance here in the Freedom Hut of we'll, we'll address the issues as they come up. We'll I'll talk about the revelations or whatever, but oh, they're playing the music because I got so into this that I forgot even where it was. All right, you see what I'm saying, though. There's nothing. There's still nothing. Oh, boy, I got some breaking news for all of you, especially. <laughs> this is what happens when you're doing live radio, everybody. Ooh, this is interesting. This is interesting. Wall Street Journal reporting. Not some uh, left-wing rag. Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting. Uh, Mike Flynn. This just broke, everybody. Mike Flynn offers to testify in exchange for immunity. That is the headline. Former National Security Advisor tells FBI, the House and Senate Intelligence Committees that he's willing to be interviewed in exchange for a deal. Now, the, oh man, this is going to get nuts. I I've read through this uh, over the course. This just broke. I just broke uh, in the last few minutes. It just came when I was on air. Now, as I was talking, like I don't see it. Th- this doesn't mean necessarily what people are immediately going to assume that it means. Um, which is and look, Flynn. There's some shady stuff. This is very interesting. It probably. Um, it probably means, and I suppose then the the, uh, the assertions that came on TV last week that there was a... Now, there's a difference between a deal where you're deferring prosecution and a deal where you have immunity so that you don't have to worry about possibly being prosecuted for what you say, if that makes sense. Meaning, there's a deal you cut where you aren't going to be prosecuted for something you did and then there's just i will testify but i can't be held legally liable for anything i say we'll get into this more team stay with me he spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself buck sexton is back welcome back team i am i'm just dealing with the the uh the wow of this re- this revelation this is it is breaking news just to bring us all back into the same place here uh breaking news that michael flynn has according to a report i've seen the wall street journal and picked up elsewhere too former national security advisor michael flynn <laughs> is i'm i don't about i'm, I'm just I, I I love it. I'm, I'm like I don't see any problem here. Like I really don't. Please tell me what the and now of course while I'm while I'm talking about that we have this moment where uh, by the way this doesn't mean this <laughs> now it's not like I'm backtracking. This doesn't mean what they say it means or rather this is not an admission of anything. It's I'm not going to pretend that it's good. It's obviously not a good thing. Uh, and clearly there were some Democrats who had a tip off about this a few days ago. Uh, but which is also quite interesting to me. How did that, how did that manage to get out there? Uh, but a few things to put this in the proper context. First of all, on the, so, so just so we're all, we all are in the same space here again, national security advisor, former national security advisor, general Michael Flynn 
has reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, not yet confirmed, but uh, Flynn's lawyers haven't haven't responded yet, my understanding, based on the reports, that he will testify about, uh, not even all that clear yet about what, but he will testify about the, in some regard to Russia stuff, uh, in exchange for immunity. Um, He will... He has told the FBI, House, and Senate Intelligence Committees he's willing to be interviewed in exchange for a deal. Now, there are very different versions of this same situation. Do we... Very different versions of this same situation here. Um, okay. First off, it is possible, based on what we know of the whole Flynn case, it is possible that he got caught up somehow and and they you know I, I don't know that there's there's a at least a concern here about they were about a perjury case that they might have been trying to make a perjury case against Flint um, uh, there there's also the possibility that he's just trying to avoid a perjury case um, although I'm trying to think of when he would have been under oath on this issue I mean lying to Vice President Pence is not was he under? Was he? Uh, was he under oath on this one? I have to check on. I don't think he was. Um, it was Sessions who was speaking to the Senate in an under oath capacity about his Russian meetings, and they made this whole big thing. And we all we remember that, right? He had had two meetings with Russians, and then there was a uh, a whole dust up over why didn't he bring up the? And one of the meetings was like a passing, like, "Hey, what's up, Russian dude?" And okay. Uh, but it, it is possible here that what Flynn is, uh, what, what Flynn has realized is one, he is politically radioactive. He resigned. Uh, White House doesn't really have his back, and a lot of problems here. What he realized is that if he's going to testify on this, he doesn't want to be in a situation where he is in a perjury trap. Which I know sounds like, well, just tell the truth, but it's not that straightforward. It's not that simple. Um, it's very easy through lots of through questioning to get jammed. Look what happened to Sessions. I do not believe for one second that Sessions was trying to lie uh, to the Senate during confirmation hearings about his Russian meetings with the Al Franken question and all that. I, I don't believe that. I don't know, but I don't believe that. Okay. Uh, so... And for those of you who are just joining, keep in mind, report out, just breaking news during this show, Michael Flynn, FBI uh, immunity deal for testifying. Michael Flynn has gone to the FBI, Homeland Security, and the Senate and said he will testify on this issue. Now, let me say this, because I promise you there will be some news outlets out there that are very slow to remind you of this at all if they feel like saying it in the first place. And that is, you will recall that during the investigation investigation into Hillary's emails, there were uh, uh, at least two that I can remember, senior aides, maybe it was three, who were given complete uh, complete and absolute immunity for handing over their laptops to be inspected. So the deal was, you know, we'll we'll give you these laptops, but this can't be used against us in any capacity. We're just going to give this to you. Uh, And that was immunity. And by the way, they all had classified on their laptops, obviously. And and it was, 
which is illegal, and no charges brought against anybody in that instance. And we were told by the media at that time that this was not that that's not an admission of guilt, that you can't take that to be anything other than just protection that is legally afforded to people in the process for providing information. And, and so it was supposed to be not a big deal. So Hillary had people get immunity in her investigation. No charges brought against anybody saying that Flynn cut a deal with the FBI can imply that, oh, he's going to testify against the Trump administration with damning information. I don't believe that. But he doesn't want to be in a position where he can be caught up for perjury or perhaps for not registering as a foreign agent because of the payments that he received from Turkey. He's just saying, look, I'll talk, but this is what I think at least. He's saying, look, I'll talk, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to put myself in legal jeopardy. I will testify. But whatever I tell you, I can't be prosecuted for it in any capacity. And it might have nothing to do with Trump and the conspiracy and Russia. And everything. You know, we'll see. People right now would mock that. I'm sure the Trump haters would say, oh, yeah, of course, nothing to do with Trump. I don't think it has anything to do with Trump. I don't know. I don't know. It's most likely to me that this is just a procedural protection in place to prevent the prosecution of Flynn because people really hate this guy. That's my sense of it. I mean, Democrats hate him and Republicans have, have left him out high and dry. And look, he made some bad moves. He made some bad decisions. <laughs> As part of what I was telling you before, he made some uh, very unwise choices in the run-up to being national security advisor, including in his discussions with Vice President Pence, as well as taking money from Turkey, as well as working for RT. I've told you this before, and this is, I need someone, because some people get very angry at me when I am critical of Flynn at all. I'm like, look, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not here. I'm not an administration lackey. I'm not here to just do whatever they want and tell you whatever they, th- you know, they think you should be told. That's not how we roll. This is the freedom hut. I say whatever. I would never have worked for RT as a paid contributor. I would never even go on RT. And that was because it was a Kremlin propaganda channel, and I knew that, and Flynn knew that too. That was bad judgment. It, w- it was bad judgment. Now, I don't think that means that Flynn is a criminal. I don't think that means that Flynn betrayed his country or any of that. But you can imagine the field day that the media is going to have with this. Assuming it's true. Remember, it's just a report right now, but it probably is. This would be quite... The Wall Street Journal is really hanging itself out the window on this one if they're not sure about the sourcing. So um, I I believe it is likely true, almost certainly true, uh, that Flynn wants immunity for testifying. So... It's going to be treated as a bombshell. I think it will fade as we know more about it in the next day or two. Obviously, now the countdown to Flynn's testimony is going to be like a giant clock in every newsroom across the country. Um, but I think this is just him saying, look, I'll testify, but I, you know, I know they're after me. There was a leak. Remember, th- there was a, a leak to get this guy in trouble. That we They won't tell us if it's classified, but I don't know how else you find out about a phone call between an ambassador and an incoming national security advisor. You know, I don't know how else you'd know that. So they've already played dirty to get him once. And he's worried, I think, that they're going to try to play dirty again and jam him up on something. Maybe there's more. If there's more, I'll be among the, I won't be the first to say it, but I will treat that as new information and we will see. But man, this White House, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long day tomorrow in the news cycle. Here I am with you with this breaking news. Just, oh man, the, They're going to be churning this stuff out for all the newspapers across the country.
All right, everybody, welcome back. Thank you uh, so much for being here. Very much appreciate it. We are joined by Ovik Roy. He is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's also Forbes opinion editor and author of Transcending Obamacare. He's back with us in the hut. Ovik, great to have you. Hey, how are you, man? I'm good. So uh, you have first, can I ask you about before you tell us your plan, uh, Ann Coulter's uh, on the show uh, on a, you know, been on the show a few times in the last month or so. And she just wrote that, look, all they really need to do is allow people to buy the health insurance plan they want to buy. And that changes the whole game. Does she have a point? Is that just too simplistic to me? That seems like it, it gets to the heart of the matter. But that would mean that a lot of people would. Well, what would that mean? Well, it's both of those things. She has a point, and it is too simplistic. So she has a point in that one of the biggest ways in which the the government, uh, both at the federal and state level, restrict our freedom is by restricting the type of health insurance we can buy. Before Obamacare came along and added that new federal layer of regulation on what kind of uh, insurance plans you could buy, you still had states regulating pretty aggressively what kind of insurance you can buy. You know, in New York, for example, where I used to live and where I think you still live, Buck, uh, for example, you're forced to buy a policy that contains coverage for acupuncture, even though you may never use acupuncture in your entire life. So these insurance mandates have been a big problem at the state level for a long time. So, yes, she has a point that that would be a great expansion of freedom if we could get get rid of those mandates. The problem is Congress doesn't have the ability to write a law or pass a law that forces states to not have insurance mandates, right, at least not – the way you and I understand the Constitution. Uh, the federal government can say, we're not going to have any insurance mandates, but they can't prohibit states from having insurance mandates. And for Ann Coulter's plan to work, she'd have to do both of those things. So, so what would be the way to actually achieve her goals, but do it in a way that you think it can get done? I assume this is the Ovik Roy path forward. Well, it's, it's not, I mean, I, I can't take credit for it, but you know, the idea that's been out there for a long time in conservative circles has been to buy insurance across state lines, right? The whole idea behind that is that if you can buy insurance across state lines, then the state that has the cleanest and the, and the most straightforward regulatory system is the state from which everyone will buy their health insurance because that state will have lower mandates and therefore lower, fewer mandates, therefore lower costs, right? Just like we do it with other kinds of insurance. That, that's the fear behind that, and that's what the president actually has been a big advocate for. So is that, and, and so then we go, is, is that the only thing that we need to do to make our healthcare system better? No, but would it have an effect? Yes. And in fact, my most recent piece at Forbes.com, where, as you know, I, I have this blog called The Apothecary, where we write about healthcare stuff, I actually have a piece that talks about how you could include uh, allowing insurance across state lines in the repeal and replace bill that Congress is trying to put together. Why did the, I mean, forget about, I, I was going to ask you why this all fell apart, but we've talked to you a little bit about it before. So I, I want to try to focus on the pathway forward. What do you think, what lessons learned, if any, uh, have Paul Ryan and other members of the House come away with now? Uh, they said last week it was they're going to move to tax reform. This week it sounds like, oh, no, we're going to do health care. It's just going to take a while. Well, what do you think, you know, what does that mean? What, what, what can we expect from the next round? Honestly, I'm not really sure what lesson leadership has learned. I mean, I think what you hear leadership saying to a large degree is um, we're, trying to, we're, we're right about everything, and what's wrong is that the Freedom Caucus has, 
has not really been, had a constructive view as to what to do, and it's all their fault, and uh, we're just going to keep at this and see if the Freedom Caucus sees the wisdom of our ways. Um, that's one approach. I think a, a better approach would be to say, hey, maybe the Freedom Caucus has some things where they might be right on, and, and let's try to let's try to let's have the Freedom Caucus put together a proposal so what they would want uh, want the health care the, re the replaced plan to look like, and let's see if that's realistic. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is. But let's have them put something together that they can line up by, behind and say they're for that can attract support from the moderates and, and the people in the middle. Well, and we've heard uh, the president saying that the plan might be, and, and look, this is the, the plan keeps changing, right? And, and I mean the plan for coming up with a health care plan keeps changing. He's yeah. been saying that maybe we wait and just let people suffer under this and then they'll figure out how bad this is. But I've even seen debate happening in different news sites about whether this is even a death spiral. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, first of all, if, if, if Trump were right that Obamacare is going to explode, I mean, is, is it responsible you know, as the governing party to say, no, we're going to let people, you know, let, the, let everything explode and we're going to clean up? Think of how many people are going to suffer as a result of this law if you believe that's going to happen. So to me, that's not responsible. The responsible thing to do is to try to, try to reform things before uh, that disaster takes place. Um, now, the question is, is that disaster going to take place? Look, Obamacare is complicated, right? It affects different people in different ways. If you're really, really poor, or if you're just above the poverty line, uh, the, the subsidies in the law are such that you're, not, you're going to be insulated from those death spirals and those high premiums. The people who get screwed under Obamacare are people who are making forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year who are freelancers or independent contractors where they're not getting employment from their work, and so they have to buy it on the open market, but they make too much to qualify for Obamacare subsidies. That group of people, <laughs> Obamacare has already been a death spiral and it's going to get worse. But for people who qualify for the subsidies such they're getting a free ride, nothing really is going to change. So Obamacare is underperforming. It's not enrolling as many people as everyone said it would in 2010. But for the people who have signed up, those people will stay in. So it's not going to be a death spiral. Yeah, I mean, can, can they just keep it alive by always saying that there's more, uh, you know, they can just keep it alive by saying the subsidies will get bigger, right? I mean, that keeps people yeah. in the exchanges. It's, it's more like a zombie spiral than a death spiral. It's not like it's completely dead, but it's sort of like zombieing along, you know, sort of like, you know, with the eyes glazed over and kind of like walking at, you know, one mile an hour kind of thing. Gotcha. So, all right. Um, and by the way, uh, the contention that this really, because your point about how it benefits some people, and it's it's really rough for others in the individual market specifically. If is it fair to say that this is really the what would be considered the the, the middle class uh, subsidizing the health care of the aspiring to be in the middle class? Or I mean, how how would you define that? What I would say is that Obamacare made the middle class and young and healthy uninsured people pay a lot more for health insurance so that poor people who are older and sicker could get a better deal. So, you know, it's not just rich versus poor, middle class versus poor. It's like middle class and young and healthy versus poor, old, and sick. Um, uh, but most people are reasonably healthy. Most people are not sick. 
So uh, all those healthy people, relatively healthy people who aren't in the hospital day in and day out, they're they're having to pay a lot more. And it, and it and it's it, it make that's why the law is so flawed. Is that there were better ways to make health insurance more affordable for those people who need it, rather than by making health insurance more expensive for for everybody else. Uh, and that's the problem with Obamacare. That's the problem we have to fix. And by the way, to fix that problem, we have to repeal and reform. Obamacare's regulations. And this is where the Freedom Caucus has been right. And the people who are opposing the Freedom Caucus and yelling at them are wrong. And, you know, look, the Freedom Caucus can be, you know, showboaters at times. But in this particular situation, they're right. The regulations are the problem. And the bill needs to do a lot more than it already does to try to roll back those regulations that drive up premiums for people. All right. Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for research on equal opportunities, Forbes opinion editor and author of Transcending Obamacare and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. Ovik, thanks for coming in to hang out. Great to have you as always. Thanks, Buck. Uh, phone lines are open, team, 844-900-2825. Uh, I see that uh, there's some talk on Fox right now about sanctuary cities. I have a feeling if I were to turn on CNN right now, there would be giant blaring headlines, and which obviously you shouldn't do because you're listening to me on radio, but there would be giant blaring headlines about, you know what, I could test this out, actually. Let me go on CNN.com and see if the Michael Flynn thing is. I haven't looked at this yet, but, oh, no, I, it's not up yet. I guess maybe only because the, the Wall, but look, the Wall Street Journal is the one that's reporting on this. So there we have it. Flynn offers to testify in exchange for immunity. Um Wow, this is get ready for this, everyone. Uh, tomorrow you're gonna see a lot more of the the Russia stuff is gonna be everywhere. Um, if you have thoughts on this or anything else, do call eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. I want to talk to you about immigration, and we have a immigrations and customs enforcement expert joining us. We'll be right back.
Alex Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, welcome back, team. We are joined now by somebody who really understands the ins and outs of what's happening with immigration enforcement in this country. Claude Arnold is on the line. He retired as a special agent in charge for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Homeland Security Investigations in the Los Angeles, California office. He was responsible for all aspects of ICE investigative missions in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. Claude, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. All right. So what is happening right now with regard to the enforcement that's going on that's supposed to be new and, you know, new and stricter under the Trump administration? First of all, is that really true? We keep seeing these reports about, oh, ICE is doing these, uh, is employing new tactics, these dawn raids. But then they say, actually, it's not that different from before. What's the reality? Yeah, the reality is nothing has changed. Uh, The the only difference is that President Trump issued an executive order that returned the discretion to line levels, officers and agents to make a determination whether or not they're going to arrest someone who's here illegally in the country. So before they were restricted, the person had to have a certain level of criminality, had to be within a certain priority uh, set of priorities. Now those priorities are still in practice, are still being followed. But if a line-level officer agent encounters someone during the regular course of their duties who's here illegally, they have the authority returned to them to initiate removal proceedings, whereas before it, it, was, it was limited. So it really is just returned things back to the state they were prior to the Obama administration. As far as raids and such, you know, that... What did Obama change, by the way? So, so we can understand how what is normal. What you're telling me is that the Obama enforcement priorities, those were, in fact, abnormal. Uh, no. Well, there were always enforcement priorities because the, the amount of resources any agency has, and ICE in particular, uh, limit what you can do. So they only have so much detention space. You know, they, they only have so many agents and officers. So there were always priorities that were followed, but ICE agents and officers were never told that they couldn't arrest someone or couldn't initiate removal proceedings against someone who wasn't a priority. Because sometimes you want to use that as an enforcement tool to further an investigation against a priority or, or a criminal organization. So, you know, to tell some to tell agents and officers, well, you can't arrest someone merely for being here illegally because they don't fit the priorities that uh, really uh, hampers their effectiveness. So you've been the, you were the special agent in charge for immigration and customs enforcement in the Los Angeles uh, Los Angeles area. People are talking so much about sanctuary cities right now. How does it really work in Los Angeles? I mean, when when we say that it's a sanctuary city, specifically in the Los Angeles area, what does that mean in terms of uh, incarceration, in terms of cooperation between local law enforcement and the federal government? What is the reality? Well, you know, the reality is Los Angeles has long had uh, been called a sanctuary city because the police department has this special order 40, which basically says that their police officers cannot uh, ask someone about their immigration status, uh, which is no big deal. That has never affected cooperation between the LAPD and ICE and its predecessor, the INS. That, that's not a problem. 
the real problem in the entire state of California is the legislation that has been passed by the legislature. legislature. So, uh, you know, there's the Trust Act, which passed a few years ago, and now they have the Senate Bill 54, which is pending. But legislation like that, and we'll talk about the Trust Act because it's been passed. Yeah, well, you've got to tell us what these things mean, because you've got people all across yeah, the country exactly. listening. So we're not in California right, necessarily, right. so what does that mean? Oh, right, right. So, so the Trust Act was, was a law that was passed by the California legislature that basically tells law enforcement agencies the level of criminality someone has to have before they can cooperate with an ICE detainer, a detainer being a request to assume custody of someone who's in the custody of another a California law enforcement agency. So, you know, they said they had to have, they had to be this bad of a guy before you can cooperate with ICE when they request to be notified uh, when that person is going to be released. So they're effectively forcing law enforcement officers to, I believe, harbor aliens in violation of federal criminal law. So you believe that, the, that this is actually a, a criminal because now we get into now we get into what can be done to force compliance from a place like Los Angeles or even a state like California. Federal government saying they may be cutting off funds, and now of course the pushback comes from the sanctuary areas that oh well that's a Tenth Amendment violation you can't do that. Uh, but I've even heard others, including uh, immigration experts. Uh, experts in immigration law saying that there might be criminal sanctions attached to an unwillingness or, or rather a a desire and uh, a plan to help illegal aliens evade justice that, that you could yeah, actually yeah, be, be charged for this. This is a problem. I, I, I believe you could be. And that's what's what's so wrong about these law, because these types of laws, you're forcing law enforcement officers to break federal criminal law. Now, recently, several mayors of sanctuary cities, L.A., New York, and others said, well, uh, we can't be, our funding can't be taken away because we're not breaking the law. But, you know, they, they focus on the civil law. Nobody, they're conveniently ignoring the criminal statute for harboring aliens. And what that statute says is that anyone knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that an alien has come to, entered, or remains in the United States in violation of law who conceals harbors or shields from detection or attempts to conceal harbor shield from detection, uh, that alien is harboring an alien. And that's a felony. This is fascinating because it has been focused up to this point on what would be a, a, a civil law dispute uh, between local and state authorities and the federal government over funds and the withholding of specifically law enforcement funds for those areas and jurisdictions that don't comply with detained requests and don't comply with the federal law back in, what was it, passed in 96, that says that you have to tell the federal government about an illegal alien in your custody. You're saying that police officers that are obeying state law that says that you have to be at this level for a detainer request from the federal government to be uh, honored, that that is a violation of cr- a criminal statute har- about harboring aliens. I mean, this is fascinating. Nobody that I hear, except a, a few examples of, uh, like folks from the Center for Immigration Studies, make that case openly, but y- I'm sure you're an ICE agent. That must be, the, I mean, that is the law. <laughs> That's what it says. Yeah, look, I'm telling you, if I was still the special agent in charge, uh, and uh, and I think what the federal government, you know, you don't want to go around prosecuting your, your law enforcement partners. But at a higher level in government, you know, for the attorney general, this should be made known 
to these uh, jurisdictions. And more importantly, I, I, I would like to know how the police unions feel about that, that their line-level officers are being forced by laws and policies like this to break federal law. You know, law enforcement officers, they want to enforce the law, not break it. And, and I'm pretty sure that if it's not already come to the attention of the police unions and their legal counsel, that if it were, uh, you know, that, that they might be pushing back on these types of laws and policies. And the way it works in practice, just so everybody listening can understand, is if it, there may be somebody who's in custody in Los Angeles and the LAPD knows that this person is in the country illegally, L.A. will tell the federal government but unless unless they meet a certain criminal threshold, they'll tell the federal government and then let the person go before the federal government can come and get them. That's the detainer request portion of this. Is that right? Well, exactly. So ICE gives them a detainer request, and oftentimes there'll be a box checked on that that saying, says the person is here illegally. You know, therefore, now they have knowledge that that person is here illegally, and we want to assume custody of this person. But that person does not meet the criteria set out by the Trust Act for notification to ICE. So ICE even says, you don't have to hold them any longer than you normally would. Just let us know when they're going to be released. We'll be there to pick them up. But because the Trust Act doesn't consider this person a priority in their view, in the law's view, uh, that... Oh, so they won't even notify there. That's a very important... They won't even notify them. Right, because that's that's clearly in violation of the federal law that I mentioned before that says they have to... They, they have to let the federal government know. They can't impede or in any way uh, stop the federal government from knowing the immigration status. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're in violation so, of a duly passed congressional statute about notification, uh, and they may be in violation of a criminal a criminal statute about harboring illegal aliens. Uh, what, do you, what do you think should be done now, Claude? If I may ask, I mean, you, you served in this capacity for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. What would be a, a sensible approach for this new administration to deal with illegal immigration enforcement specifically? Well, I, you know, th- there was a similar situation under Bush the Younger's administration where uh, the state of California with uh, uh, juvenile kids who are adjudicated as delinquent after serving their sentence, the state of California was, in order to uh, avoid them having a formal deportation, they were actually, these are Central American kids, some of them gang members, etc. They were transporting them to put them on a flight to their country. So helping them to leave the country um, of their own accord to avoid uh, being formally, be put in the formal deportation proceedings and have, have a formal removal order. And what happened was they got interdicted by some ICE agents at the Houston airport, and the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of California, who, of course, was a Republican appointee, it was under the Bush administration, wrote a letter to the state of California saying, hey, look, you're transporting aliens in violation of federal criminal law. It's a felony. Cease and desist, or I'll convene a grand jury. And guess what? The state of California stopped. Um, you know, so I, I think... If if the attorney general or, or one of the U.S. attorneys in these jurisdictions were to give the legal opinion and to let them know that, hey, this is in violation of law, I think people would, you know, change their practice. Now, in California, it's a bit different because now it's a state law. So, you know, I don't know how you undo the state law, and I don't know that there's the will to do that. It seems to be an environment of of um, resist immigration enforcement at all costs in the state of California. Last one for you, Claude, before we'll let you go. Um, There have been 
two different narratives about the Obama administration on enforcement. People used to refer to him as the as the deporter in chief. And then it became clear in the later part of his administration that a lot of the way that they were counting those crossing the border, a lot of the metrics they were using to get a sense of border security were being uh, manipulated and messed with to make it look like there was more strict enforcement. What was really true? I mean, did did, did the Obama administration, particularly in the, in the second term, have a hands-off policy towards illegal immigrants, or were they really deporting a lot of people? Well, they, they were definitely deporting a lot of people. But, you know, you see with policies like DACA and this uh, pr- prosecutorial discretion where they limited the discretion of agents and officers. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of deprioritization of immigration enforcement. So it was almost like a, a systematic dismantlement of the immigration enforcement um, uh, uh, infrastructure. So, How so? You know, How they dismantle? And, and, Just tell me that. Give me those details. Well, well that's what I'm saying. By, by limiting the discretion of agents and officers... And, and instituting things like DACA, where took made people no longer, uh, you know, g- giving them some sort of status so they couldn't be removed. I mean, c- clearly, immigration enforcement, the administration, and, and, and you look at the state of California, uh, it's, it, as I said, if this had happened, and a similar situation did happen under the Bush administration, immediately, the Department of Justice called the state of California to task for doing something that they found in, in violation of federal law. But I believe that the state of California felt they could pass laws like the Truss Act because they knew that they were not going to get resistance from the Obama administration. Because philosophically, they both agreed on immigration. Claude Arnold is retired as a special agent in charge for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the uh, Los Angeles office. Uh, Claude, really appreciate you making the time. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. Talk soon. Welcome back, team. I am looking at all this new information that's coming in. It's it's happening right now as I'm on air uh, about General Flynn and the report, not yet confirmed, that he will be testifying under oath on, well, we assume Russia, Trump election stuff of some in some capacity. This is a day, a day when a, a, a number of things have gone against uh, the administration on this one. And the, uh, the, the folks, who, the anti-Trumpers, the Trump haters out there are going to have a lot to run with tomorrow. Just be prepared for that. I see here that uh, Eli Lake, who is a, a very solid national security journalist, is not the least bit happy, understandably so, uh, with Devin Nunez. Hey, at least everybody, I'm getting, his, I'm getting his name right today. Nunez as opposed to Nunez. I'm told it is, in fact, Nunez. Uh, so Lake, who was one of the ones that that was reporting that earlier this week, remember the sources that, that Nunez had or the people that he met with when he looked at the information that he gave that press conference on last week? The uh, sources initially were told to Eli Lake by by Nunez. uh, He said that they were uh, from an intelligence official, not a White House staffer. This is what Lake, who has, by the way, been willing to call out police state tactics of the Democrats uh, against Trump. And he used the term police state tactics. I mean, he's not some Trump hater, everybody. 
Uh, here's what he wrote Turn, about Nunes. It turns out he misled me. The New York Times reported Thursday that Nunes had two sources and both worked for the White House. This distinction is important because it raises questions about the independence of the congressional investigation Nunes is leading, which may lead to officials at the White House. Nunes is leading a double investigation of sorts. His committee is probing ties between the Trump campaign and Russia's influence against the 2016 election. It's also looking into whether Barack Obama's White House inappropriately spied on Trump's transition. Um, He says, the chairman told me Thursday that elements of the Times story were inaccurate, but he acknowledged, I did use the White House to help confirm what I already knew from other sources. This is a body blow for Nunes, who presented his findings last week as if they were surprising to the White House. He briefed Trump after holding a press conference on Capitol Hill, and as he was leaving the White House, he made sure to address the press again, but this was a show. <sighs> okay. Um, I, I am, I am uh, processing this one, team, as, as a lot of this information now is coming in. As I said to you before, breaking news while we were here on air, report from the Wall Street Journal that uh, Flynn will be testifying. I'm seeing my friend uh, Andy McCarthy, who's a regular guest on this show, uh, already writing about how this is likely not about an avoidance of a perjury trap. Um, I'll see if I get Andy to respond here. I reached out to him a second ago. I'm curious to see what he thinks about... I I asked him straight up, what do you think? He's a former federal prosecutor. He gets this side of it like, uh, like as well as anybody. Uh, what's the most damning explanation for Flynn? What's the least damning explanation for Flynn? If this is true, which I think it is, I, I don't know. I, um, I am. Uh, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to work on this one a little bit, Tiva. We're gonna switch topics, by the way, coming up. You're not not because I don't want to talk about this anymore, but I think we've done the subject matter enough. It's not. I swear, I'm not trying to throw a smoke bomb like Batman and, and you know I'm Batman and, and get out of here quickly on that subject. I just. Uh, yeah, I, I got to keep looking at this and figure out what is going on. I have to tell you, White House is doing a terrible job of messaging on this one right now. Uh, and Nunez, uh, you know, you, you lie to journalists who are, are being fair to Trump overall, like Eli Lake. Uh, not good. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, team, welcome back. I wanted to talk to you about, I mentioned this, I think, at the start of the show. Um, and uh, there's this battle over bathrooms continuing Continuing right now, uh, North Carolina, you, I'm sure, will recall, had a uh, quite a stir after what was after the passage of House Bill Two. Uh, now, House Bill Two included as part of it, and there were also more general uh, LBGT protections in the bill. The one that got all the attention, though, the reason it was called the bathroom bill is because that it stated that somebody could use the gender, I'm sorry, use the bathroom of their uh, gender identity, not their, well, right, not their sex, I guess is how we're supposed to separate these two things that aren't really separable, but that's what we are told now. By the way, increasingly, 
and this is what I wanted to talk to you about. This is very, uh, this is disconcerting. This is troublesome. Increasingly, we're not even going to be allowed to make these distinctions as a matter of law, I think. Just give it some time. You will be putting yourself in legal jeopardy for refusing to say that a man is a, is a female or a female is a male. You will be subject to um, you will be subject to certainly civil sanctions, and and I I don't think we'll get to the point where that will be criminal, but we'll talk about what's going on in Canada in just a second. We'll get there. So House Bill Two uh, was passed, and then as a result of that, the governor was defeated. It's believed in large part it was a very narrow, very tight race this past fall. Uh, the governor was defeated because. Uh, of his support for or signing House Bill 2. And the Associated Press released an analysis that because of all of the businesses out there that were uh, outraged by the 11th hour act of the Obama administration to, uh, well, the Obama administration gave the guidance on gender uh, and bathroom usage for schools, this was the North Carolina legislature, but the environment had shifted as a result of administration policy in part, I believe. Uh, and these private institutions were absolutely outraged about this whole situation, right? That, that there could be that you would be told if you're a man, you got to use the men's room. And if you're a woman, you got to use the ladies room. That's it. That's what this bill was saying based on your birth certificate. The gender on your birth certificate is your gender. This is not a complicated issue. But it becomes very complicated because of the politics. It is made to be complicated when it is, in fact, quite straightforward. So the House bill would have cost uh, North Carolina as a state $3.7 billion in lost business over the next 12 years, according to an Associated Press analysis. You have the NCAA saying they were going to uh, refuse to hold that what the I don't watch college basketball I I don't really watch much in the way of uh, televised sports in general I know it's like I'm barely American I watch some NFL and occasionally basketball not a whole lot more I mostly just mostly just nerd out to politics and and history books just how I, just how I roll, team. Just how I roll. So uh, the Associated Press put out that analysis. There clearly was real financial pressure on North Carolina here. You know this new governor, and they've he just signed it today. He repealed House Bill Two, which would, according to the New York Times, here create a moratorium on local non discrimination ordinances through 2020 and leave regulation of bathrooms to state. Lawmakers. So what they're saying here is that you know it's going to be left up to the state. You can't have local non-discrimination, you know, because you could have this patchwork of well, it's what's okay here is not okay here within the same state. And they're like, it has to be done at the state level, and you can't do anything on a local level for a municipality on this issue through 2020. So they're kind of pushing this off and kicking this can down the road a little bit. Uh, the Associated Press. Okay, I told you about that analysis. So, a lot of people up in arms, of course, about this on on both sides. Now, you got the people saying, "Oh, it's all so horrible and discriminatory." And these, remember now, the the way we're supposed to view all this is that what had been the case in this country for 
you know, the last, I mean, forget about the last couple of hundred years, right? Because people would say, oh, well, look at what was legal in this country, you know, 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Fine. But what until about five minutes ago was considered quite normal, um, separation of genders in certain circumstances that involve, you know, nudity or bathroom usage. So in the locker rooms or in, in bathrooms, uh, that was considered just fine. And now it's now it is open to a much broader interpretation and gender identity. If it is something that a person just thinks, if it's based on belief, I don't see how you could legally challenge. Uh, I don't think I, I don't see how you could legally challenge somebody who decides that you know they're going to go into the ladies' room for the day. I, I don't know. What is it? Ba- it's based on physical appearance. So then, if you have, and I mean this honestly, because this is there's no real criteria for this at all. You will have uh, progressives scoff and and uh, yell at you for raising these kinds of questions. But what's what's the criteria for being uh, a, a, a officially transgendered? Do you have to have a psychiatrist sign off on it? Does it have to be you have to be taking hormone therapy? I, I really mean this. And I should note that we've been trying to get an MD who has uh, background and expertise in gender reassignment surgery, which I believe what it is formally called. And it's very hard because they all realize these people all these are when you're looking for an MD, you're talking about somebody who went to school for a long time. They all recognize that getting involved in this issue is just a giant political headache for them. Uh, there is no there is no win. Right. It, it's just they're going to upset people. And I'm sure a lot of them just want to practice medicine and help people and not be a political football. But I would really want to know. I'd like to have a doctor on the show at some point to tell me what the real uh, limitations of gender reassignment surgery are, both in terms of the outcome, the expected outcome. How often does it lead to success? Uh, what is what is success? By the, I don't know, and I, I'm not trying to get into a a, a weird a weird area here, but I don't even know what they how far down the pathway of the surgery, like how much can change. I don't know. I don't know. It's not something we've spent a lot of time researching. I'll be honest with you. So, but we do want, I want to get an MD. I'd like to get an expert on to let us know how, uh, how that process go. I mean, there's the one uh, MD from Johns Hopkins university uh, hospital who was head of gender reassignment surgery before believe for a long time. He's written the wall street journal. And he said, look, it's, it's a really bad, procedure in terms of outcomes and he thought it shouldn't be done anymore and that it was uh basically according to him uh giving into uh, or or uh, giving into a form of mental illness more or less uh, that you were and there are other and people will bring up these other psychological disorders that that are real that do exist uh I, i'm trying to remember the the uh the technical name of it and uh amy if you uh if you figure it out while i'm on air here let me know it's where you you believe that a a limb is uh not really a part of your body and should be removed and people can believe this with they they will sit down with psychiatrists and they will say they absolutely should remove my arm i i don't believe my arm and i know this this sounds like i am making it up there is a it's not body dysmorphic disorder, I don't think. It's something, but it's something along those. It's um, 
I'm forgetting the term. I will find out. Uh, uh, I'll find out certainly in the next break. Sorry, I can't Google it while I'm on air because then you hear me typing and I'll be looking for it. But that's a real condition that exists. A medical condition where somebody wants to have a limb removed or they or, or they want their back to be broken so they can't walk. Or I mean, there's any number of ways it manifests itself. And clearly medicine would be... Uh, doctors would be violating the Hippocratic Oath and it would be highly unethical for them to indulge that mental illness. They should obviously treat those people and help them, but not in the way that they want to be helped. Uh, This is where we get into the transgender issue. Uh, But the law is already moving. I mean, the progressives have moved very far ahead on this one. And not only are you now a bigot if you believe that and then it goes back and forth. When you bring it up, they go, oh, what, what difference does it really make if, a, if a, a man goes to the women's restaurant? He could do that now anyway. Well, then why is this such a big fight? If it doesn't matter, why does it matter? Right? Why are we forced to talk? By the way, this wasn't a, a, an argument that conservatives or the right picked. We weren't walking around saying, you know, let's, let's really get into a big debate about transgender rights. Progressives picked this whole fight. And the moment you start to walk them down the pathway of, okay, what does this really mean in practice? The pushback is always, oh, well, well either you're a bigot or, oh, what's the big deal? Well, they, they can't play that game. It can't be a civil rights issue, but, oh, in practice, it doesn't really matter. You can't stop people from going to the bathroom anyway. What are you going to do, call the police? I see this. I see these arguments being made. And, of course, it does have real ramifications for policy at private institutions and schools and clubs and any number of places. So uh, I want to tell you how this is going up in Canada, and we'll talk about a social justice protest, social justice wimp protest up there that got completely out of hand uh, with a a professor who speaks on this issue. Uh, Specifically in Canada, what's going on is they're trying to pass a a bill um, that, or I believe they have actually passed it, that would criminalize usage of the wrong pronoun for transgender individuals. I kid you not, my friends. So now you better call he Z as in XE if he chooses that pronoun or else you could be in trouble. It's like a, you know, well, not a hate crime, but it's discrimination. It falls under federal discrimination. We'll get into this uh, and I'll play some audio for you. Remember, this is just up in Canada. A few steps ahead of the progressives in this country on this one. And Trudeau signed this bill into law up there. I'll give you the details when we come back. So up at, uh, this was a few days ago, up at Canada's McMaster University, there was a big a big demonstration, a clash uh, f- between those who want to talk about free speech and those who are transgender rights activists. And this is all in response to a law in Canada, Bill C-16, that says that individuals must use the preferred pronouns of uh, gender non-binary people or be faced with prosecution. This was from Real Clear Politics. Uh, this uh, You can imagine what this was like. I mean, first off, you've got Peterson, who's talking, this Professor Peterson is up there, who's trying to speak, and he's got all the stuff going on that you can imagine. They're uh, blowing air horns in his face. They threw glitter on him. I mean, just acting like a bunch of little maniacs. And here's how it, uh, here's how some of it went. It's best to let the unreasonable opposition speak. 
because they manifest themselves as unreasonable. Yeah, and then yeah, everyone can yeah. see it. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason that you want free speech, right? So he's saying it's good in a sense that there's this effort to shut him down at McMaster University because you see these these imbeciles running around acting like little vandals and refusing to hear anyone say anything about anything uh, that they don't like. And they're chanting. I, I, we had to be careful here because there were there were so much at these protests, too. I, it would never have occurred to me when I was a college student. And, I mean, that, you know, I went to a speech by Al Sharpton. He was invited on our campus and the whole school went, basically. I mean, you know, it would have never occurred to me to shout profanity at a speaker. I just, it's just, it's, I don't know this is going to sound, it's just rude. It is rude. That's what you, one would call it. It is rude. And... Yet conservative speakers are subject to all kinds of uh, horrific verbal and sometimes physical abuse, as we talked about with Charles Murray up at Middlebury. But uh, Professor Peterson, who we have just, you know, we've reached out. We'd like to have him on the show. Hopefully we'll get him on the next few days. We just reached out today. Uh, he talked a bit about what this legislation, what the what is at the heart of the matter? Why is he up there at this university in Canada? Keep in mind, we're having our own transgender rights fight right now in North Carolina, across the country with the federal government. It is happening in this country, too. Canada is just a few steps ahead. Canada has Trudeau, who you know makes Bernie Sanders look reasonable on many policy matters. Uh, th- so they're even further down the line, but this is what's coming our way. And here's P- here's this professor Peterson after he's been shouted down. He wasn't able to give the speech. He has to go outside, and they're taping him speaking outside to a, a small group of students that will actually listen because they 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 literally prevented his speech inside the auditorium. But here's what he says: Clip twelve. It's the first piece of Canadian legislation that's ever been put forward that actually requires people to use a particular set of words. Now, there is other legislation that does govern to some degree what you can't say. So, for example, you can't incite a crime, and that's perfectly logical. It's a reasonable restriction on free speech. But we've never had a piece of legislation ever that would require you to use a certain kind of vocabulary. And regardless of what that vocabulary is, and the fact that it happens to be about transgendered terminology, hypothetically, is almost beside the point, as far as I'm concerned. Now, it, it, this all focused on this all focused on this particular issue, and it had to focus on some issue. But this isn't the issue that that's, that's at the bottom of it. It's just that complex things manifest themselves in very particular locations, and this just happens to be the location that this is manifesting itself in. And finally, you can see too that the vast majority of people, for example, men who are biologically male, who present themselves as male, or who identify as male, who present themselves as male, are also heterosexual. 95% of them, perhaps 98% of them. Excuse me, sir. Sorry, I just had a question. I believe it was explicitly stated to you that you should be staying off of those topics. We kind of want to hear your views on free speech, but we don't want to hear your views on gender identity and stuff. I thought it was made clear. Those are okay. Stop. Stop. So, so you hear, you hear that? That's a college student who's outside of a. I mean, I thought this really got to the center of the point here. That's a college student who is outside of an auditorium that has been overrun by progressive maniac social justice warriors with horns and posters and yelling curses at i mean all this stuff and she sits there and it's just so just so 
proper with her little social justice warrior self-righteousness is, sir, it was made clear to you, we want to hear your views on free speech, but not on this issue. Says this with no trace of irony. Says this with absolutely, you know, just like, like she's speaking gospel here. Oh, we want to hear your views on free speech, just not on that free speech. This is a real problem, everyone. This isn't something that we can ignore. And I know we're talking about Canada and not America, but do you think this is really, this is any different than what you get on college campuses? Of course not. It's worse here sometimes. The difference is that with Canada, the legislature is taking this step where you now have to use the the preferred pronoun under Canadian law of people who are non-gender binary There are dozens, literally dozens of different versions of gender nomenclature that the progressives have come up with recently. Z and call me they and, you know, uh, know, whatever. All these, I can't, I don't even know. I know Z is one of them, XZ, but there's other versions of this too. And now if you refuse to do that, so in the past, for example, I'm going to say, you know, I would never be unkind to a transgender person. I know some transgender people and in fact... Uh, have some transgender listeners to my radio show, and they are welcome, and I appreciate that they give me their time. That all said, I do have an issue with being told that somebody who's biologically male I have to refer to as she because he says so in person. I, I just I don't want to be a a party to falsehood because where does that stop? If somebody if someone grew up as Bob and changes his name to Susan, I'll call him Susan. You can you can change your name, but you actually can't change your gender. And science is on my side on this. You can't change your gender. And a, a pronoun is not a personal preference thing. It is actually a, a, a response to a fact. Um, but you're not going to be allowed to make that distinction anymore, at least in Canada. How long do you think before they try to push this through in this country? Maybe not right now under the Trump administration, but just give it some time. Uh, There will be state legislatures in places like California and elsewhere, I'm sure, that will be pushing this issue. And they'll then turn to the courts to uphold their interpretation of it. Um, And I didn't even get time to get into how this professor actually had an excellent discourse on how this is all about postmodernism and Marxism, actually. The destruction of gender is a postmodernist Marxist effort. But we'll have to talk more about postmodernism and Marxism tomorrow because we got uh, we got to talk about VP Pence. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. I just wanted to follow up with what I was saying before, everybody. It is body integrity identity disorder, B-I-I-D, that I was referencing. Uh, That is the condition where somebody wants a healthy limb to be removed or to have other uh, terrible injuries inflicted upon them because they, they... these are otherwise people of sound mind, uh, but they believe that this needs to be done. And they want a doctor to do it for them. And it's a real medical condition. Should we, you know, is that up? Is that subject to interpretation? Should, of course not. But no one wants to talk about that right now. All right, let's get to our guest who's been patiently waiting for us. Uh, Matt Walsh, he is an author at The Blaze. He's also the creator and author of the Matt Walsh blog. Go to mattwalshblog.com for that. And his new book, Unholy Trinity is out now. Matt, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. Uh, Matt, I, I know I didn't get a chance to ask you or, or to, to send this over, so I don't even know if you've seen it yet, but any any thoughts at all on the report that General Flynn may be getting immunity to testify about Trump, Russia, all that stuff? 
I to be honest, I I, I hadn't seen that, but I guess I I. I, uh, it literally it just broke in the last hours. I, I, I so I'm I'm springing this on you anyway. If if you if you have any thoughts on it as we go through, by all means, jump back in with it. I was just wondering because I'm I'm sitting here thinking to myself, even if nothing comes out of this, it just looks it just looks bad, even if it's not as bad as people want to make it out to be. But all right, let's talk about something I know you've got a lot of thoughts on because you were involved in quite the social media exchange but i didn't think that you it's not like you were you know lighting uh lighting fires on purpose here you just said what's the big deal with pence saying vice president pence for those who don't know actually matt you tell the story what happened so the 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 pence rules were what and then what did you do yeah um i guess his wife was uh, interviewed by some publication and said that uh and mentioned that you know one way to keep their marriage strong and they fortify things protected is that, that they don't uh, go for meals one-on-one with members of the opposite sex, excluding family members, presumably. And they don't drink, you know, they don't go around mixed company and drink unless the, unless the spouse is there. Um, and uh, the media saw this as breaking headline news. You know, it, it's like the absence of a sex scandal is itself a scandal, apparently. And then people were taking to social media, to cackling about it like hyenas, making fun of Mike Pence for actually respecting his life. And I just wrote something on Twitter last night where I said, you know, I, I understand where it's coming from. My wife and I have a similar policy, and I simply asked, what would be the scenario where a married man would have to go for a one-on-one dinner date with a woman that's not his wife? Uh, you know, what's the appropriate scenario for them? There may be an appropriate. I just was wondering what that could possibly be. I go to bed. I wake up in the morning, and I find out that I'm, like, trending on Twitter, and thousands of people outraged by what I said. And this one, I'm just, I'm honestly flabbergasted by. I don't, I don't get it. I, I Honestly, I never, and I know I just, I, I had a book that just came out, and so it just what happens that I'm getting all this attention on Twitter, and it seems like I did it on purpose. Yeah, good for you, dude. Was, <laughs> yeah, I wish I could say I, I was smart enough to know that this was an issue that would generate publicity. I never imagined. I, I still don't understand why people care or why it's such a shocking and outrageous thing to people. Well, I think it's interesting as well because not you have really two uh, two lines of attack, and, and I agree with you. Why, why, there, why is there all line of attack on this? What, but we'll get. I'll, I'll get there in a second. The lines of attack that I saw, and there was a Huffington Post piece, of course, on this, and you were even in there with you know just what you said on social media, and, and the lines of attack are that this is something that you would expect from the Taliban, or you know, it's effectively regressive. Uh, and and terrible in that sense, and I don't really know. I don't really get that other than just traditional Christianity now is considered regressive. I mean, to be a Catholic who goes to church on Sunday is to be a regressive, you know, a, a regressive uh, Stone Age person. Um, and then the other side of it also is that there is a sexism in the workplace that this creates, meaning that uh, women, this is sort of like you know, women being kept out of the men's club here, right? I mean, this is, you know, the cigar smoking, drinking brandy, where all the deals get done and women aren't allowed. Uh, if women can't have dinner, and of course the assumption is we're talking about just women with men, but it goes the other way. And what I think is interesting is, first of all, those are both, to me, uh, completely uh, sort of hyperventilated, exaggerated responses to what, to what Ben said. But also on top of that, a lot of women are exploited under the pretense of you you better have dinner. I know I have a lot of friends here in New York City that have been through this. I've actually been dating a girl or two in the past when I said, you know, your boss, you know, while his wife and kids are away, seems to always like to have dinner with you like Thursday night around 8.30 p.m. That's a little strange. Uh, it can actually be used to be exploitative, too, which I don't think any of the liberals seem to think about. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, well, this, this show against feminists are so self-focused they're just they everything's about them i mean this was never 
This is not just about women. We were talking about men and women. No one ever said, oh, the woman shouldn't be around men, but a man can do whatever he wants. No one said this is the exact opposite of the Taliban, where the men can do what they want with women's <laughs> property. This is, this is a man respecting his wife and saying, I'm not going to be around other women when she's not around. So this is the exact opposite of that. But people are so, first of all, people are selfish and they make everything about themselves. And, uh, and second, I think the other problem is, especially, you know, in my generation, uh, it, it, it's, and I think this outrage was fueled as usual by millennials, but what outrage isn't, but problem in my generation, we're, you know, very few of us have ever been married and not only that, but very few of us have even ever seen, honestly, if you think about it, have never even seen a healthy marriage. We don't, a lot of us don't even know what that looks like. Now I'm an exception because my parents had a great marriage, but, um, a lot of us grew up, never saw a good marriage in the home. And of course, if you look in the media, you don't see a good marriage. So they don't know what one looks like. And if they ever encounter, if they find out, you know, well, this is what goes into making a successful marriage, they feel scandalized and shocked by it. Whereas to the rest of us who have been around healthy relationships or been in them, it's not so shocking, you know, because even if you don't share this, even if this isn't a policy in your own relationship, I think if you've been in healthy relationships, at the very least you should respect this and understand why somebody would have this policy. Right, right? yeah. It's not even that, that uh, you're not saying, nor nor would I say, that everybody must have this policy, but that this policy, or the, it's not even a policy, it makes it sound like there was a legislature that passed this, you know, in the name of Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Pence, but just that this is an understanding between two adults who are in a marriage which should be taken as a serious thing by everyone, and I think you're alluding to this point that it, it, it isn't taken nearly as seriously as it, as it should be anymore by, certainly by... Uh, you're a few years younger than me, but we're close in age. Uh, in, in our generation, it's it's become something that people just don't even think twice about anymore. Well, maybe, you know, it's a real a serious thing. Maybe it's not. But that somebody would be mocked for this, I think, says so much more about the people, particularly those in the media that found this so ha-ha funny. It's, you know, things can get bad very quickly, even without necessarily starting out with bad intentions in this regard. I, I've I've seen this. I know the the way it goes, and I, I thought it was so interesting and so telling that a lot of the female writers and media personalities that were coming after you on this never even stopped to think about how you know actually the the one on one dinner, especially if, if for a female who who is married, it can be a very uncomfortable situation. A lot of uh, men in positions of authority will say, well, you know, if you want to get ahead, if you want to advance your career, and it it creates a a dynamic that can lead to really destructive and bad things. And I, I'm not some Puritan. I just know what happens. Yeah. And I think even if here's the point, I think in a marriage, uh, maybe this isn't exactly your policy or there are exceptions to it, but I think anyone knows you, you, there, you're, there, you have, you must have some boundaries. You can't just continue carrying on exactly as you did before interacting with people in the exact same way, in the exact same context with no changes whatsoever. You have to put some boundaries, some protections in place, because, like you said, you know, things people are human. Things happen. If you, I was, I was surprised, not surprised, but I, it's sort of laughable. All these people, kind of sad. All these people that would, I responded to me and said, you know, my spouse would never ever do this if my husband wants to go and have dinner. You know, he has dinner with a friend from high school who's a, who's a girl once a week. You know, I, I heard that a few times, and he would never do anything. He would never do it. First of all, that is, first of all, that is weird. If you're, if you're, if you're spouse has an ongoing date with some other member of the opposite sex, you know, every week. I mean, that, that to me is weird. I mean, I'm not married, um, but I wouldn't be okay with it. I wouldn't even be okay with it with a serious girlfriend. So there you go. <laughs> right, no, that, 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 but and also, it's not just to say, well, he would never, you can't, 
what you're saying is that he's impervious, what, to the temptations of lust? He's impervious to adultery? Don't you understand that every single person who's ever been cheated on, without exception, has said this about the person who cheated on them before they found out about it, that they would never do it. Um, so I think what that tells us is that nobody is really impervious to this. So what you do is you, you put protections in place and you set up boundaries. And you want to set up the boundary not like right on the precipice of where cheating occurs, but you want to give yourself a cushion. You know, you want to set it up pretty far away from where cheating occurs. And then, and then you know, you, you, you have that and you don't have to worry as much. And it doesn't mean that you don't trust the other person. This is just about respect and about being careful and about being adults and understanding human nature. Uh, you know, I just seems logical to me. It seems logical to me, too. And, and the older I get and the more I see the way this plays out in real life, even among friends of mine who are engaged, friends of mine who are married, uh, it, it's just it's just not worth it. It's not. I always say you, you want to avoid, and this is just a, a maxim that I try to live by, don't let unimportant things affect the important things. And, you know, trying to impress your boss, male or female, depending on, you know, obviously assuming the boss is of the opposite gender, by staying out late and having a bunch of extra drinks and just being so cool is is very rarely worth it and can lead to very bad things. And and I just didn't think it was... Uh, by the way, you know, David... I remember David French when they were uh, from National Review I've had on the show a whole bunch of times, I think maybe even a week or two ago. I remember he got a lot of, a lot of heat from people when he was uh, rumored to be thinking about making a run on the GOP ticket because when he was deployed in Iraq, uh, him and his wife agreed not to, you know, talk to, like, exes or friends from high school or whatever on social media and that they set some boundaries. And people thought that was a cause for mockery. And I'm like, look, anybody who's been out there in the war zone will tell you that, you know, it, it's you don't want to have to worry about that kind of stuff back home. I, I didn't think that was strange at all. But once again, it was ha ha, you know, David French, just like just like Pence thinks that his marriage needs to be protected and taken seriously, which I don't know. It doesn't strike me as that weird at all. But that's that's where I am on this. I know you obviously see this the same way. I, I was shocked to see the exchanges that I mean, the, the responses you got on Twitter, not just that people disagreed, Matt, but that people just thought this was so hilarious. Like, this this was the, you know, uh, this was like he was saying he won't drive a, a, a car to work, he's only going to use a horse and buggy or something. It was bizarre. Yeah, yeah, and these, and these are people, I think, that for the most part just have, as I said, just have no concept of what goes into, uh, forget about marriage, but just a healthy human relationship with another person. They've never, they, they have no concept of what goes into it, so it seems funny to them. And I also think there's a little bit of, People feel challenged, you know, when they hear about what other couples are doing, taking their relationship seriously to protect the relationship, and then they look at themselves and they think, I'm not doing anything. And, uh, and maybe they feel kind of challenged. It makes them feel uncomfortable. They lash out like children. So I think there's a little bit of that going on, too. Uh, tell me about your book, Matt. It comes out this week, Unholy Trinity. Uh, everybody listening can get it on Amazon.com. Tell us about the book. Yeah, this is a book I wrote kind of tying together themes that I've been writing about for, for a while now, um, uh, trying to distill it down. What, we, what is the culture war? What are the three uh, primary battlefields of the culture war? And to me, it's, it's quite obvious that it's life, marriage, and gender. And um, so the unholy trinity kind of refers to the left's three-pronged assault, trying to def- redefine, as they've successfully done for the most part, life, marriage, and gender. And um, a big, you know, big... Uh, point of my book or purpose behind it is to kind of get conservatives united around this and galvanized and to understand how important these battles are so that we can then go out and engage, uh, you know, the left on them. And, uh, what were your, what were your thoughts in response to the, 
the Planned Parenthood videos this week and the 15 felony counts. Yeah, well, that was just, we want to talk, this is, we, we hear about how Donald Trump is stifling or persecuting the press because he says mean things about them on Twitter or whatever. Uh, meanwhile, we have a, a undercover journalists who are actually being charged with felonies and facing prison time, lengthy prison time, for, um, for, for conducting an undercover investigation. I mean, this is real political persecution. And then you find out that, well, we know that, they've, that they've, you know, the California state government is entirely in the pocket of the abortion industry. They've been co- blatantly collaborating on ways to get back at Dave Delight and then the, the Center for Medical Progress. And this is just absolute political persecution. And you know something? I, I, read, I read an article just a couple of years ago in California. Uh, some animal rights activists did a similar thing at chicken farms where they took undercover video at chicken farms to document the uh, you know, persecution of chickens that goes on chicken farms. And the, state, the California state government had, apparently had no problem with that. In fact, they, they looked at the video and started and, uh, and, and investigated the chicken farmers. But so apparently you're allowed to take undercover video of chicken farmers, but not of uh, people who are chopping babies up and selling them for parts like, you know, like their car parts or something. It's just, it's, it's just plain evil. There, there, there are a few places where you see politicization in government in more stark terms than when it comes to prosecutorial discretion. Uh, and we could, that's a whole other discussion, but the sometimes, you know, the law is the law, except for the fact that when you have partisans who are in the prosecutor's offices, they can do what they can do as they wish. I mean, as you know, Matt, they yep. can just decide no charges here, charges there. And as you just illustrated for us all, oh, we know where California stands on the issue of life and uh, they stand against it, unfortunately. Uh, the author is Matt Walsh, everybody. He's his book is out this week. Unholy Trinity. It's up on Amazon, right, Matt? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon. It's also in, uh, I think, a lot of Barnes & Noble stores right now. All right. Unholy Trinity, Matt Walsh, author of The Blaze. Great to have you, sir. Uh, Have a good rest of your day. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot. Gender dysphoria used to be called gender identity disorder, but they've changed it now. So there's that to follow up on our conversation about all of the transgender rights issues that have come up. All right, John in Mississippi on WBUV. You've been very patient, sir. What's on your mind? Well, I want to know what's become of Evelyn Farkas. Do you remember Evelyn Farkas from a couple of days ago? I was talking I was talking about her yesterday. Right. Well, uh, is she was she in the news today? I wasn't able to listen to anything. And frankly, um, I googled her on the computer, and I uh, came to I googled the name Evelyn Farkas, and I came to an article uh, an article put out by Scopes dot com S C O P E S. Yeah, I know Snopes. Yeah, I'm not familiar with them. I'm not familiar with them, but they appear to debunk this um, feeding frenzy that we created over uh, Farkas's admission to uh, leaking classified documents in the article appears to um, debunk that and calls us, call us a bunch of fools. But uh, one thing they point out is that her interview was March the 2nd, four weeks ago, and not March the 28th. But I, I thought about it, and I realized it doesn't matter when she gave the interview. The, the, the substance of her interview is still the same. She admits to leaking classified documents, even though she tends to imply that uh, she leaked them to uh, the Hill, meaning congress 
but the, all the, the the reports came out in the newspapers. So maybe she leaked them to some uh, Congress members or maybe some staffers of Congress congressmen and congresswomen. But uh, we read about it in the paper. So her 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 admissions are, are still valid. It's still it's still just as pertinent and relevant as it was yesterday and the day before. It doesn't matter that she's responding to a New York Times article about Obama's attempts to preserve intelligence. This was their method of preserving the intelligence that Russia's uh, influenced our election. And um, in the course of that, uh, they they actually right. picked up some. John, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to yeah. cut it just because we're, we're we're out of time on the show, my friend. I'm sorry. I will check out that Snopes piece and I will uh, respond to it tomorrow on the show here. Uh, thank you all very much for being with me today. Uh, always enjoy all my time with you here in the Freedom Hut. Uh, if you're listening and you have not already, please follow me on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Also, subscribe on uh, iTunes. Buck Sexton with America Now. The podcast is free. Just subscribe. Click subscribe. and It'll pop into your podcast inbox uh, every day of the show. And uh, if you want, join me for Facebook Live tomorrow right before the show uh, at 5.50 five eastern time shields high